Father, we do uh, pray that you would do us good as we open up the scriptures and reflect on what we read there. Help us, Lord, to see you more clearly, to see ourselves more clearly, to see Jesus more clearly. We pray in his name. Amen. So today, <coughs> Joseph's long pretense that he's been this game, he's been playing this, this uh, testing of his brothers that he's been doing, this kind of finally collapses. And we come to the point at which the tension in the story of Jacob's family comes to a head. Uh, we have been following the story of Joseph and his brothers. We're here at St Edmunds over like six or seven weeks. And sorry, you know, if you're just lobbing in today, it's a bit like, you know, here we are in, you know, episode seven of a mini series, and you've got to kind of put it all together. I'll do my best to, to help you out. But uh, before we plunge into today's kind of thrilling episode, uh, I want to ask the question, why is this family that we are, whose story we're following, why is this important? It's important in the Bible. There it is. It's many chapters of the book of Genesis. Why is it important in the Bible and why is it important to us? Is it important because it's, you know, a human story, such a human story? This story of envy and rivalry, of sin and guilt, of rising and falling fortunes, of temptation, of tenderness, of reconciliation. Is it here because, you know, it's like our own stories, our own families at some level? Now, it is a human story, full of human drama and feeling, but it's not in Genesis for that reason. It's in the Bible and it's important to us because it is a divine story. A story of God's choice of a line of human descent, a series of families, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, a series of families who God chose to be blessed and to bless the world through them. This promise that begins uh, to be uh, given in Genesis 12, 2 to 3, to Abraham is echoed throughout the book of Genesis. And let me remind us of it. I will make you, says God to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So what is at stake in what we read is not just the survival of any old family, but what's at stake is the survival of the family through whom God has purposed and promised to bless the whole world. This is a family we don't want to see them wiped out in this famine. So today, uh, with that kind of big picture, let's zoom in now and look at the story and then I'll offer some reflection on it. Uh, really, what happens in today's episode is that uh, Judah stands by his pledge to protect Benjamin. If you were here last week, that was, that was Judah's great stake in the sand. I will guarantee Benjamin's safety. We need to go to Egypt. He needs to come and I will guarantee it. And Judah was not, you know, just... These weren't words, it turns out. Judah stands by his pledge to protect Benjamin. And that is pivotal in changing Joseph's you know, approach to the brothers because Joseph's pretense finally collapses and his brothers are released from his testing. That's, in a nutshell, what happens. Let's go over that in a little more detail. When Joseph sees that his brothers have come back to Egypt on a second trip, they need to do this because otherwise they'll starve. They need to buy grain. When Joseph sees them back, he executes his next plan. 
And this plan has many steps. Step one is the softening up. Instead of speaking harshly to them, as he did the very first time they arrived, and saying, you are spies. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, come to lunch. And when Joseph came home, verse 26, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. And so, gosh, this is much more civilised than being thrown into prison. So far, so good. But step two of Joseph's plan is the provocation. Right? Joseph then treats Benjamin with obvious favouritism at this lunch. Verse 34, when portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. The youngest brother, who has been doted on outrageously by Jacob, his father, at home in Canaan, is now picked out for special treatment in Egypt. And this could be an occasion for the envy and the resentment of the other brothers to be stirred up by this and for them to say, oh, that Benjamin, he's so infuriating. But this is not what happens. There seems to be no note of resentment, envy or tension. They feasted and drank freely with him, that is with Joseph. The brothers are actually getting on, harmonious, united, relaxed, even when this favour is shown to Benjamin. That's step two. Step three, the plant. Chapter 44, verse 1. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. And we think, oh my goodness, has Joseph no mercy You know, the brothers have had every assurance that all is well here. They've come back to Egypt. They've been hospitably received. They've received Simeon, their brother, back, who was a hostage. And they've produced Benjamin. And what else could Joseph ask for them? And here, Joseph prepares a really nasty surprise waiting for them. And so here is step four then, the sting Joseph lets the brothers leave for home and as they go with the food in their sacks and Simeon and Benjamin both in their company, I'm sure their hearts were light and they think, wow, the Lord is good. That went well. And then, you know, Joseph sends the steward after them and he stops them and he accuses them. And then, you know, verse 12, the steward proceeded to search and beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. It's just consternation, grief, anguish. They all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. And this is perhaps the lowest point for these brothers, the crushing blow. Everything is suddenly melted away. All their light-hearted joy at this going well has turned into catastrophe. But it's going to get slightly worse, would you believe? Because when they come before Joseph, there is step five, the turn of the screw. That Joseph 
proposes to take Benjamin alone as his slave. Now, Judah, as we know, has pledged to Jacob to guarantee Benjamin's safe return, the safe return of this favoured son. And so it's on Judah to get Benjamin off the hook. And he starts by approaching Joseph with a complete concession of the guilt of all of them. You know, he might have been tempted to think, Benjamin, did you actually steal that silver cup? Have you brought this upon us? He might be tempted to think, well, I could just throw Benjamin under the bus because, after all, he was the one with the cup in his pack. But no, he approaches Joseph with a complete concession of the guilt of all. What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied in verse 16? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are, we, we are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. He kind of wraps them all around Benjamin to protect Benjamin from being singled out. But Joseph singles Benjamin out. But Joseph said, verse 17, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. And so what will Judah do now? I mean, he could tell himself, well, what can I do, you know? This man, this powerful man in Egypt who seems to know everything, who can do just as he pleases, he wants Benjamin. He insists on Benjamin. You know, at least if the rest of us go home, we'll take this grain back, we and our families won't starve. I mean, we came back and we got Simeon back and maybe we can come back for Benjamin. Maybe we'll get him on another trip. Perhaps this is open to Judah and perhaps he thinks about it, but what does he do? He doesn't do that. He goes all out to save Benjamin by offering himself. This speech by Judah is the longest speech in the whole book of Genesis. It is a recital of the story. We didn't get the whole speech, but the emphasis in this recital is on the certainty that returning without Benjamin will kill Jacob. He will not be able to stand the grief and shock of this loss. And Judah's heartfelt plea that he himself be enslaved in Benjamin's place kind of caps off this speech. Verse 33, Now then... Please let your servant, that is me, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Now, there's no faking an offer like this. You make the offer, it will be accepted or not, but you can't lie in that offer. You have to mean it. And you need powerful reasons to make such an offer. Judah must have had them. The desire, the real desire to spare his father or to protect his brother or to keep his word or all three. But this was a genuine, genuine act. And the ball is now in Joseph's court. What will he do? Before we answer that, you know what you make of Joseph throughout all this? He's been, in the story so far, a somewhat self-absorbed, self-important teenager, provoking the resentment of his brothers. He's been also a talented, virtuous, resilient young man, resisting temptation, winning the trust of important people, governing well and wisely. 
But who is he here in this testing of his brothers in this ongoing, harrowing way? Now, is he the wise, godlike discipliner of his brothers, refining them through trials, which were unpleasant for them, but gave them a chance to act differently and to become different people? Is that who Joseph is? Well, he could be. It's quite consistent with that idea. Uh, Or is Joseph actually not that at all, but rather the vindictive tormentor of his brothers, using his power and his advantages to set them up and to make them pay and suffer? And in many ways, you know, there's lots to indicate. Well, there's, there's not much to distinguish Joseph from being someone who is doing that, who's just being vindictive and vengeful. Perhaps only Joseph's periodic bouts of weeping over his brothers might indicate something else is going on. Or is Joseph perhaps seeking to discover if his brothers can be trusted by testing them? But you see, there's a danger there because how much testing is really enough to know, to know that they are different? Is Joseph at risk of of being trapped in this endless testing, ever deeper probing of his brother's motives? It does seem, whatever the case for Joseph, it does seem is that here, in this episode, the testing has reached a point of exquisite agony for the brothers. And in that moment, as Judah offers himself in place of Benjamin for the sake of his father, that is when Joseph breaks. He doesn't kind of bring this to an elegant conclusion. He just falls apart. Verse 1 of chapter 45, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. This act can just no longer be sustained. The truth just kind of bursts out and the mask just falls off. And this is where the credits roll for today's episode on this, again, kind of high moment. And we don't really know exactly what's going to happen next. So come back next week to find that out. But this is the story of loyal love winning out. You know, Judah went all in for loyal love, loyal love of his flawed father. Please let your servant remain here in place of the boy. Do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. And that appeal from Judah, that went straight through Joseph's mask, through his act, and caused him to lose control. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. I am Joseph. Is my brother, is my father still living? Joseph is in the end as stirred up about his father as Judah was, or perhaps even more. And so this brings us to this, the, verge, the verge of reconciliation. It's the next thing that's going to happen to spoil it for you next week. This family that's been torn apart by favouritism, by envy and betrayal, by lies, by self-pity, by distrust and threatened with starvation through all of it, this family is about to be put back together. 
because of the loyal love that Judah has just demonstrated. The final instalment next week. Some reflections, though. Firstly, you know, Judah's dad was hard to love, wasn't he? But Judah showed him loyal love. Judah somehow found that, you know, his life was bound up with his father's, closely bound up, just as his father's life was closely bound up with Benjamin's life. Let me remain in place of the boy. Do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. And perhaps Judah really could not explain how his heart had become so bound up with his father, how his father's misery was going to touch him so deeply. God's work in his heart, perhaps. Perhaps you have someone who is difficult to love. Perhaps you must show loyal love to them nonetheless, with the help of God and by the grace of God. Because not to do so would just mean misery and loss, actually, for you and everybody else. Where where you and I have people who we must love loyally, sacrificially even, even though, gee, they're hard to love. They're very awkward people. Pray to God for his help that you might be like Judah and discover that that's actually what you want to do. You can do it. Uh, Secondly, on Judah, to be sure, Judah was also kind of making amends. He was proving that his repentance was real because he had, after all, sold Joseph into slavery. And so it's not actually unfitting that he should be ready to suffer slavery himself, given his own guilt in this. And he was ready to suffer slavery. Uh, Perhaps um, there is something that you would do well to kind of take responsibility for and to make amends for. This can be part of repentance. A costly part of repentance is to act differently, to face consequences of something you've done and do something to set it right, at least to avoid the same sin again. Now, it may not always be possible to go back and make amends and set things right. It may not always be advisable to try to go back and fix something. But sometimes there may be situations where you can prove your repentance by making amends, by acting differently, even in a costly way. And maybe, again, can take some inspiration from Judah. My third reflection is this, that you can't escape your relationship with God's chosen one. You can't escape your relationship with God's chosen one, right? That's what it means for a person to be God's chosen one. They're kind of inescapable. God had chosen Joseph to be the saviour of his family. This was not something that could be negotiated or gotten around. You know, Judah and his brothers rebelled against this idea that Joseph was somehow singled out by God for a special role that was foreshadowed in his dreams. Uh, They tried to, um, well, they sold him into slavery, thinking, got rid of that problem. But you can't fight God. And so Judah and his brothers did indeed end up bowing to Joseph, did indeed pleading for Joseph's mercy and did indeed end up receiving Joseph's mercy and being saved by him. Now, God has chosen Jesus 
to be the saviour of the world, a descendant of, uh, also of Jacob, a man in this line of descent through which God promised to bless the world. God has chosen Jesus to be the saviour of the world. And that reading I read from John 6, 27 says, On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. He's chosen by God. And we are called to believe in him. John 6, 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, the priests and the Sanhedrin, they rebelled against this. They said, no, we're not having this Galilean upstart. We'll get rid of him. However, you can't fight God. And so even though they had him put to death, up he rose. Philippians 2, 9-11, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Joseph was not sent to Egypt or exalted in Egypt for his own sake, but for the sake of his people, for his father and brothers and their families, to save them from this crushing famine. The gift that he had in his hands in his exalted state was was bread, bread of life. Jesus was not sent into our world or exalted in our world to God's right hand for his own sake, but for our sake. And the gift in his hands is the gift of life for others. John 6, 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him... God the Father has placed his seal of approval. You can't escape your relationship to God's chosen one, Jesus Christ. If God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not in your interest to, do, to try to say no thanks or no way to that. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It's not in your interest because he's been sent for you. He's been sent ahead to provide food that endures to eternal life. The thing to do is to believe in the one God has sent, to come to that one and say, give me this food, Lord. I'm ready to depend on you and to honour you because you bring it to me. So come to him and believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for the way you send saviours, that you sent Joseph down into Egypt and exalted him in Egypt so that he might have in his hands bread, food for life, to preserve his family. We We praise you for sending Jesus Christ into our world and exalting him from the grave to your right hand for our sake, that from him we might receive food that endures to eternal life, a relationship with you through him. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be empowered to do your work, the work of God, to believe in the one that you have sent. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.